Hello and welcome back to the NovPod, brought to you by Anesthesia on Air, in association with the Royal College of Anaesthetists. I'm Owen Dorr, I'm one of your co-hosts, I'm an anaesthetic trainee in Thames Valley, and with me as always is my co-creator of the NovPod, Duncan Kemp. Today we are talking all things portfolio with Joseph Lipton, who's not only a consultant in London, but also has a role in the college, sorting out the novice curriculum. So who better to chat to to understand why you have to do these assessments and how to get the most out of them. We're on to episode IAC and Mm -hmm. this is to give the novices a bit more of a clue of how they go through their three to six month process and get themselves that shiny certificate that is uploaded onto their computer and then get their computer framed on the wall <laughs> for it to show that certificate. And we've been very fortunate to be joined by yourself, Joe, who is Joe Lipton, who's head of the novice. Um, he's head of novices everywhere. So if you don't know him, um, you, you can have his email and he will sort out any Personal issue. phone number, actually. Personal phone it's number. It's preferable. And your home number, just in case yeah, your personal yeah, phone yeah, number's yeah. off. Yeah. That's ideal. Yeah, yeah, so that's okay. And just in case they run out of money, that your bank account would be useful as well. Yeah, no, yeah. sure. One of the questions I had when I first started didn't really know anaesthetics well is why do we need a initial assessment of competence? What does it mean? Why can't I just go and anaesthetise people? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that what this is about is that although obviously anaesthesia has its foundations in all of medicine that we've all learned in our foundation years, you're doing something really fundamentally different when you start a career as an anaesthetist or indeed just start giving anaesthetics as an ACCS trainee. And you're taking somebody that's come into hospital completely well, rendering them unconscious, stopping them from breathing, taking complete charge of their physiology for a period of time, all the while while somebody's performing surgery on them. So obviously that is a a huge step to take and it's not without risk in experienced hands and so we're just respecting that about the nature of the profession and the risks that we undertake by making sure that people have a really well supervised beginning and a quite clear set of endpoints to reach before they can start to practice with any degree of independence. It's interesting you mentioned that it is so different from any other specialty and even thinking of the fundamental thing if you ask any specialty trainee when was the last time you drew up diluted gave a drug IV yourself from start to finish let mm-hmm. alone how many times in the last day have you done it it's yeah. quite a even the soft skills and the, the smaller things you're right are so radically different aren't they especially because of the fact that when you open that cupboard and you look around all of the different drugs that we handle every single day and you think the potential for risk there for drawing up the wrong thing or doing it incorrectly or giving it in the wrong dose unlike in other settings where you've got lots and lots of checking processes that quite often take a very long time we as anaesthetists draw up and administer drugs ourselves in very short quick succession and that just requires a great deal of practice and a great deal of attention to detail so those sorts of things really take some time to assimilate and what I notice when I, it's funny you should mention about drawing up drugs because I was working with one of my CT1 trainees a few weeks ago when he was in the first week or two of starting and we were talking and he was drawing up drugs probably for the first or second time ever. I was talking to him and he said, I'm sorry, I've got absolutely no idea what you just said because he was so focused on what he was doing. He had no bandwidth left 
to listen to anything that I was saying. We just started again and I said, and I actually just said, let's stop talking. You focus entirely on doing that. And I think that reflects a lot of what's going on during the novice period, which is that things that later become second nature are requiring absolutely all of your attention to start with. And that means that you've got no capacity whatsoever to respond to things that are unexpected, which occasionally happens in anaesthesia, all the more reason to be incredibly well supervised to start with and why we need to have an initial assessment of competence to make sure that people have spent the requisite time finding their feet, understanding their environment, understanding the risks that they are taking on by anaesthetising somebody. I guess your IAC would have been different, Joe. Yeah, completely different. So back into prehistoric times, you're still using paper, weren't you? I was actually, I was using paper. I was just at the advent of ePortfolio, which was the precursor to LLP. And I was completely mystified about what was happening during my IAC, actually. I didn't really understand it as an assessment. It didn't make a great deal of sense to me what I was doing because the previous iteration of the IAC was a list of 19 mandatory workplace-based assessments. And it was the same for every single person. We all did the exact same list of those assessments. And in some respects, that was straightforward, okay, because it was really quite clear. It meant, yep, just do all of these and then you're done. But what it really lacked was any real sense of reflecting your, your learning journey. It was really quite procedural. What I really felt about the IAC was that it was something that was almost completely parallel to the process of learning that I was going through in starting as a day one beginner and then being able to actually function with some degree of autonomy as a proficient beginner, if you like. And so what we've moved to is, for the 2021 Initial Assessment of Competence, is a different way of describing the work that we do. And that's a concept called entrustable professional activities. A bit of a a mouthful of a name, but all that they are is they're a way of describing clinical work in terms of core tasks that we as professionals learn to perform and that as you acquire the necessary competence, you can be trusted to perform with less and less supervision. So for the novice period, we've got two of these EPAs. EPA number one is performing an anaesthetic preoperative assessment. So the absolute bedrock skill of assessing a patient in the perioperative period and starting to consider how might we anaesthetise this person, what are the risks that they particularly pose and how are we going to look after them safely. So that's EPA 1. And EPA 2 is performing a general anaesthetic for an ASA 1 or 2 patient having uncomplicated surgery. And in terms of clarity, what we're really aiming for is to say, right, these are the end goals that you really need to be working towards. And we anchor those two EPAs to the supervision scale. So to be awarded your IAC, you need to be able to pre-assess a patient and anaesthetize a straightforward patient with supervision level 2B. So that's a supervisor somewhere in the hospital, a consultant or a registrar able to come and help you. And that's a much more explicit description of what it is that we expect you to be able to do when you are awarded your IAC as compared to what we had before, which was collect these 19 bits of paper and somehow mythically in the background, you're going to be assessed as whether you're kind of okay or not. And it was much more hidden process. And a lot of that nuanced decision making that was going on in the minds of your consultants was completely obtuse to you as a trainee. And furthermore, it very often didn't get fed forward to you to help you develop. So this is a way to have a much more shared understanding of what the expectations are, a much more open and transparent process. And then 
tailoring your experience to guide you towards being able to perform those activities with the required level of supervision. Great. I, I like how you said that previously it did feel in parallel because that's absolutely what it did feel like. And as always, we're trying to switch from that parallel learning to integrated, aren't we? Exactly. Because I definitely remember I was so worried about the job itself and learning bits and bobs that I actually printed off some paperwork and put it in my locker as the tick box thing. And I said, mm-hmm. I'm going to forget about that for the first month. Mm-hmm. And I just want to try and learn what am I actually doing day to day. Exactly. And I think this sound, and I'm sure it, it's working in real life much more seamlessly as opposed to someone going, okay, now I've learned how to insert an IGL correctly. I need to tick this box, which is actually not anything I've done today. So mm-hmm. let's run around and try and find someone who can do that for me. Exactly. And that's the massive mindset shift that we're trying to advocate. We want the supervised learning events that people are completing to be complementary to the learning process, to be actually part of what reinforces the whole thing that you're doing in your day-to-day practice. And that's why I think it's important that we don't have that minimum number, because we also don't want them to feel like point-in-time assessments. They're supposed to be stimulators of conversation, catalysts for a learning conversation about what's taken place. And then little low stakes episodes of feedback and reflection that together form a narrative. And taking it a step further, what we also have in the 2021 IAC is we have those two EPAs and they're then anchored to the supervision scale that we utilise throughout the curriculum. To be awarded the IAC, it's quite a straightforward pair of things that you need to be able to do. You've got to be able to pre-assess people pretty independently including those with some complexity as well. And the importance of that is that you need to understand your own scope of practice. You need to know that if this person's got significant coronary artery disease, I'm not going to anaesthetise them on my own. And also I might tell my senior about them. You'll see that each of the two EPAs are underpinned by a list of what are called key capabilities. So key capabilities feature throughout the curriculum. And that's kind of how the granular detail of the learning objectives are described. And so what you can do is you can use those key capabilities to reflect on what it is that you need to learn and have a bit of an understanding of the scope of what an EPA really constitutes. And then you can also link your workplace learning activities to those capabilities in a way that I hope isn't too onerous and is fairly straightforward and intuitive on the LLP. Oh, it's so straightforward. <laughs> you know. um, there'll be no confusion from anyone. That does make some things a little bit a little bit better. A logbook. Does that form into a component of how you assess people? No, it's definitely part of it. And it, and if you look on the IAC certificate, it's one of the components. And it's not to say that we've got like, right, you must do X number of this or that. It's just a reflection of what clinical experience goes alongside everything else that you've uploaded. I think the other thing that I would say about, I mean, not to diverge too much from the logbook, and if you want to ask something else about the logbook. Oh, I've got plenty more questions about the logbook, (laughs) Joe, but you you carry on for now. But I'm quite keen to emphasise the fact that although the LLP is like the repository of evidence, you know, not everything gets recorded on the LLP. And we understand that a lot of what takes place if we're thinking about assessment goes on in the minds of the supervisors. And it's not that we have to absolutely document scrupulously every single element of that decision-making process. But the point of the LLP is it samples the learning process in lots of different ways. And we've got the multiple trainer report that we can talk about. We've got what you've recorded as personal activities. Reflection is a really important part, and that in- that's incorporated within supervised learning events and also as separate standalone reflections. And with that sample plus 
the observations that take place every day in practice, that's where that judgment is being formed. And I think that's true to life and honest in the way in which assessment takes place in reality. That all sounds very nice. And you've talked about scaffolding. There's been mention of books, of logs somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But how do they go out and achieve their IAC? How does that get broken down? What are the assessments looking like? Further on from that, how do they stop them becoming another tick box exercise? Yeah, good question. So as I mentioned, the two core components are EPAs 1 and 2. There's a couple of other bits that have to go alongside that. If we look at those in turn, within EPA 2, you'll notice when you review the key capabilities that there's some at the bottom that are to do with the management of emergencies. And those things don't crop up every single day. So there's a component of it that's delivered through simulation. So you do a skills and drills or simulation exercise in the management of a failed intubation. That's one kind of standalone part. The rest of the kinds of evidence that you upload is a combination of supervised learning events, which I'll, we can talk about afterwards, personal activities, so that's your private study, your e-learning, your attendance at courses, in-house teaching, and personal reflection. So that's reflecting on your learning activities that, that you've been doing. Within the supervised learning events, I guess that like those things are what we used to refer to as workplace-based assessments, and everybody will be familiar with the different types, ACEX, DOP, CBD, ALMAT, the important thing is, and this is something that people struggle with because I guess it comes from a lot of reasons why people struggle with the way that it's written in the new curriculum, which is that you don't have to do a set minimum. You don't have to say, right, you must do 20 for this or you must do anything in particular. It's been left open-ended and for some people that's challenging because they're like, well, what's enough and what's too much or what? Do you, just, do you see what I mean? I thought I'd get validation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the point is that these are designed to be tools that support your learning. They're designed to sample the conversations that you're having and stimulate the conversations that are useful with your trainers every single day. Right, we were talking about EPAs as a way of describing the work. And then we, we anchor that to the supervision scale. To be able to, to be awarded your IAC, you need to be able to do these two core tasks within direct consultant supervision, with a registrar or a consultant in the hospital able to help you as required and within kind of touching distance or not too far away within the hospital. But you need to have progressed to the point where you are operating with a little bit more autonomy than you did at the beginning. And I guess that that's the thing that wasn't explicitly part of my own experience and others experience of the 2010 curriculum was that that transition was not quite so clearly managed the expectation definitely wasn't as explicitly declared as it is now and that's what I think is really valuable about EPAs is that they're relatable pre-assessment and giving a general anaesthetic to a straightforward patient are the things that we do every single day and you can then build on from that to do more complicated tasks but that as a descriptor of what you need to do during the IAC I think is one of the things that's a strength of the new curriculum. Interesting what you said about you're building a little bit more autonomy but you have those safety nets because mm -hmm. I remember it was only myself and two other novices in our hospital and we had I think it was a three-month block where we were just 7.30 to 5.30 electives mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sometimes on CPOD, but weren't on call. Mm -hmm. And then the whole thing was, right, you've done your IAC, you're on call now. Mm. And then suddenly it was like, oh God, are we just going to be left alone to do everything? Quite a 
stress can build up, particularly amongst novices of thinking, oh, as soon as I've done this and I've shown I can do it, I'm going to be left alone. Yeah. But I think in reality, it's far from that, isn't it? It's... Yeah, absolutely. I remember that aspect of it too. And it did feel kind of like a cliff edge. And it needn't feel like that. Because actually, in the way in which I and many of us supervise, it's a graded withdrawal of supervision that takes place. And actually, that's part of... That's what I think is quite interesting about this word entrustable, because it does really hone in on the fact that what we're doing is building a trust relationship as a supervisor and as a learner. It's two-way. But I'm learning to trust you and understand you and how you think and what your capabilities are. And you're learning to trust me as a supervisor to guide you and help you to, to reflect on your own performance and improve. And the reality is that that's always how training has worked, right? It's an apprenticeship model that's always been there. But this is the idea of the way that the curriculum and the assessment strategy has been designed is to be more complementary to that rather than to just feel like something that's completely outside of what's going on in the workplace. Do you see what I mean? I have some specifics to ask about my friends who are ACCS, ED, ITU, AMU, PICU, trainees. For those who don't, for example, have lifelong learning mm. as they're, and they're using another platform, what would you think would be useful for them to logbook, for example? Well, I think an anaesthetic logbook during your six-month placement, irrespective of your parent specialty, is really valuable, just as a, a reflection of the breadth of clinical experience that you've had. Certainly for emergency medicine trainees, their Kaizen portfolio for ACCS is equipped with all the paperwork and documentation that's needed for the IAC, so EPAs 1 and 2 are there multiple train report tool is there so all of those things are present but I definitely would recommend that as a record of what you've done during that six month placement that you use an anaesthetic logbook and obviously the lifelong learning platform is equipped with its own logbook and, and that's what probably most anaesthetics trainees will use but there are lots of commercially available alternatives that you could download and use on your phone and I think that's worthwhile doing. You've got to think about what are you leaving anaesthetics with mm. apart from a love of anaesthetics. Certainly and so, a desire to change specialty. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll, we'll <laughs> slowly convert. <laughs> We've touched on that in previous episodes. <laughs> But what are you leaving with? You are, if you're an ED, you're leaving with the capability likely to perform a rapid sequence induction mm -hmm. in your emergency department. Mm -hmm. Would it give you more confidence if you logs and you knew how many tubes you've done and how many rapid sequence induction you've done? It might do. So mm -hmm. have a think. There is some value in you going for a logbook and then being able to reflect on what you've done during your anaesthetic period. Mm -hmm. I would have a discussion with your supervisor and your college tutor mm -hmm. with what you want to come out of your six months. Because mm -hmm. sometimes when you, and I felt this in my ACCS training when I was going through AMU and ED, I, I sort of had to think a bit more about what I was going to get out because it wasn't going to be my parents' specialty. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another thing to think about as part of your evidence if you're joining us either for a brief or for you falling in love with our assessment mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, yeah. so I think we've just got some uh, <laughs> quick fire top tips. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if I'm filling out an SLE, mm -hmm. what's the perfect bribe to bring a consultant <laughs> together? To well, we're all different, and it depends on whether you're one of the boring consultants like me that does intermittent fasting and you catch me before midday. Mm -hmm. Because uh, most that's another anaesthesia trope, I think, that's just creeping in. Oh, I think yeah. I'm on the tipping point. I think I'm one of the early adopters of this particular practice, but... Catch me after midday and then you can get me a flat white and I'll probably be favourable in what I write. 
<laughs> now, I think people have become intermittent fasters and anaesthetics because they don't get breaks. And so instead of saying, no, I didn't get a break to have a coffee, you just say, oh, no, don't worry, intermittently fast. <laughs> That's right. That's how, it's just all how you frame things. That's how you stop, you yeah. know, stop getting depressed at work. Exactly. All about mindset. That's it? right, exactly. I remember in Birmingham, I started intermittently fasting during COVID because yeah. there was one set of PPE, so you'd stay in it for like four to six oh, hours. Oh, yeah. I lost loads of weight because I just didn't eat. <laughs> yeah, also because you probably sweated through. Yeah, I, I, sweated, I sweated out quite a lot. Do you have any do's or don'ts for um, sending some of these assessments? Well, I think a, a big do is to try where possible to complete them contemporaneously. I can see it both ways, actually. I think there's value in both certainly having the conversation, the conversation that informs what goes on the form, that really should happen at the time. And I think that building that into the day and into the list is something that most trainers will, will be looking to do. But if possible, completing it contemporaneously and you can utilise the quick approval function on, on LLP. Counter-argument to that, it can be valuable to go away and reflect on it and have a bit of time to think. And so I think that's totally fine too. Certainly having a conversation that is then reflected in the SLE itself, the conversation's the really valuable bit and the SLE can be the record. Um, so that's one thing I would say. Other do's and don'ts. I mean, be active in participating in populating these forms. Make them useful. There's no point in just writing one line on the form and sending it and thinking that just having the piece of paper or the virtual piece of paper in your portfolio is going to be enough. Actually, make it useful. The conversation should be useful. The, the reflection that goes into completing the form and then it can be a record of something that's happened you can look back on it later and say oh yeah that that's where I was and also as I've talked about you're creating a narrative of your progression so when you look back at month three at what you were doing in month one you can see where you've been and where you've gotten to and that can be really encouraging. I think on that in terms of getting the most out of your SLEs what I have realised both from trying to get the most out of my SLEs and now that I'm signing them off for other people is looking at other information sources that you can do. So mm -hmm. if you're doing an extubation SLE, the Difficult Airway Society have a great mm -hmm. guide. If you have got something on laryngospasm, that is covered either by the Quick Reference Handbook or by the a BJ article. And it shows that you're not only taking the lessons from that specific case, mm -hmm. but you also know some more either bailout techniques or some more of the surrounding information about the genre which can help your supervisor know that you're looking for further information. Definitely and actually on that in terms of what you populate the form with and what you as an anaesthetist in training writes on the form from my perspective as a supervisor that can be really valuable. I was thinking about a situation I had with one of my CT1s a week or so ago. We had an episode of laryngospasm that took place at the end of a case we managed it together, we discussed it in some detail. And then he completed his SLE and wrote a really detailed summary of what we discussed. And actually, when I spoke to him about it later, the writing of it had been valuable because it had reinforced the stuff that we talked about. He then went away and looked on the e-learning resources that are around laryngospasm and reinforced some of that. And from my perspective as a supervisor, I could see that he'd taken a great deal from that experience. He'd really internalised a lot of what we'd talked about. And when we talk about that building of mutual trust, I can see that that's a really reassuring episode for me as his supervisor in terms of forecasting in the future, what's it going to be like when he's 
doing a bum abscess at midnight. Okay, you shouldn't do a bum abscess at midnight. <laughs> the bum abscess on call and laryngospasm happens. I know that he really understands what's going on. And importantly, he understands to call for help. Those things were very evident in the way that that SLE was completed. And that's really valuable. That's a good reflection. I like to call them professionally pilonidal abscesses, but <laughs> that's okay, Joe. Don't, don't worry about your terminology on that. I think one of the don'ts that I learned from hearing a consultant tell me is don't send something more than two weeks or mm. let's say longer mm-hmm. without a context or without asking them for permission because mm-hmm. if they let's say they're working five days a week and say they're say they're working um, uh, full on for uh, two three weeks mm-hmm. and they've had let's say 10 different people to supervise and mm-hmm. they've also then had 40 different cases they're not going to be able to take the learning points and they're not going to really want to sign you off as being competent Mm -hmm. if they, as you mentioned, you've got 150 consultants. If that's Mm -hmm. the first time they've mentioned you, Mm -hmm. they might be worried that this is the only rapid sequence induction Mm -hmm. kex that they're going to get signed off. So if you need to do that, if you've got a specific event, do send them an email with the event listed out saying, is it possible that I could redo this? Would this be all right? And then if not, then at least you have your answer rather than just sending them a random ticket out the blue because they may not be able to place who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that there's a lot in that. Firstly, if the situation is that two weeks after an event, you're like, oh, I absolutely must have this piece of evidence. I think for me, for, for my take on what they're for... That's really not what they're for. You know, I don't want these. These tools are designed to support learning. They're not simply designed to be a little piece of the jigsaw puzzle that you need to present at your ARCP. So that's part of the reason I don't think that's great practice. But what you just said about the fact that, yes, time passes and the the utility of that SLE begins to diminish as both of your memory for the events diminishes too. So contemporaneous where at all possible. And if retrospective, sometimes that happens then yes, have a conversation. And, and if I receive something like that and, and a conversation hasn't happened, then I will usually say, let's talk about it. And then we can turn it into something and make it useful. And if not, can That's because I'm a saint, though. Yeah, yeah I, I know. I, I was just about we to say, the halo. If, if not, <laughs> halo. Um, and people are struggling with their sign-offs, mm-hmm. can they email you directly? <laughs> who, who, who do they... Let's say they're getting up to three months, they're worried about their level of sign-offs. Who, who do they go to, Joe? I guess the thing about that is that this is partly, you know, it's important to bring out the fact that we're not talking about sign-offs in the way that we used to. We're not in a situation where you absolutely must have this, this, this thing ticked off. And that's why it's important to consistently build this portfolio of evidence. That's how we would advocate it being done. But if you feel as though, you know, if you and your trainers feel that the body of evidence that you've uploaded isn't sufficient, then make a plan with your educational supervisor and look at what over the next two weeks you can realistically accomplish and what gaps in your either knowledge, performance or indeed portfolio there are, and then proactively address it. Because they will have trained hundreds, if not thousands, an army of novices, should we say. <laughs> and it won't be the first time that they're having to suggest additional steps or maybe a bougie a boutique (laughs) yeah a boutique bougie unique individual plan you're bougie (laughs) on the mind though to someone to i I actually have quite fun do you know why they're called bougies 
But you mean the bougie? You're yeah. not talking about bougie, that word that young okay. people use. Okay, yeah, yeah. we're just on to, just on to a separate point of anaesthetic. The gum what? elastic variety. Uh, yeah, yeah. Why are the, they the, called that? Yeah. I don't know. Why are they called that? Uh, interesting you asked, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> So it so comes history corner finally comes through. <laughs> it comes from a, um, a town, I believe, from Libya, where they do specific candles, where they can bend the candle into a specific shape. Wow! And that's what they used to use as surgical instruments was linen with wax over it that bent in specific shape. And then anaesthetist, I keep hitting my yeah, mic. And then anaesthetist. This is gold that. as well, and you you know you might you don't want to wreck it with a, a mic wax. <laughs> I know. I just keep I keep getting so excited. That I want to like get my point across. And then anaesthetists, as we do, looked at what the surgeons were using, nicked one off their tray, and then used it for a difficult airway. Shazam. And that's how uh, bougies came into existence. And what's the name? Where's the name come from? The name comes from the town. The, the town. The, 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 uh, the town the, in the, Libya. Is yeah. there a town in Libya? It's good to see that it was so interesting. I'm in person with you, Joe, and you've missed off the the, the first sentence I spoke there. I was mesmerised. Yeah. Okay, I can't help it. Yeah. A couple of things to clarify in the outro. Firstly, Bougie is a town based in Algeria, not Libya. Secondly, the first case report I can find of a Bougie being used is by Robert McIntosh in 1949, who did nick something from the surgical side of the table, but this was a urinary catheter that was used. Luckily, these are not what we have in practice today, and I haven't yet had to ask for a urology registrar to bail me out of a difficult intubation. We will leave an article that describes the development of the bougie in the bio, along with more information about the resource Lifelong Learning. Please, if you have any colleagues that you think will benefit from this podcast, share it with them, and do ask any questions that you have left over to myself or my Twitter handle that I have left in my bio of the Novpods. Our next episode is about well-being with Ramai Santhropala, a RCOA council member, and we will look forward to seeing you there. So bye for now.